sure is a blessing to be with you today. When I got here this morning, I looked up and Isaac was leading the music. I met Isaac when he was a senior in high school, and uh, he was at a youth conference with his youth pastor. His youth pastor, just growing up, just happens to be one of my best friends in all of the world, and Brandon Hudson currently pastors in Hampton, Virginia, at the Bethel Baptist Church there, and so Brandon and I work together at the same camp. In fact, fun fact, and you may care not at all about this, but it's special to me. Brandon and I both met our wives the same summer at the same camp, and uh, so he went to Maranatha with my wife, and his wife, Sarah, went to Bob Jones with me, and my dad used to say, you should switch, switch schools or switch girlfriends, um, but we didn't do either, and both of us graduated in our respective places and married the girls we were dating at the time, and here we are. And then to look back and see the Petersons, I used to sit in Coach Peterson's Sunday school class, even before I got married, when I'd come up and visit my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time. And uh, so it's fun to be with friends tonight. And I hope even through this morning and tonight that uh, you'd be willing to call me a friend. I'd like to be able to call you a friend as well. And I'm thankful to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in the family of God, we have great friendships and relationships because of God's work in each and every one of us. Tonight, I want to do something that might feel a little bit more like school than church, so I hope that you'll bear with me on that a little bit, but I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty. Today, this morning was really the challenge, the heart, you know, this should be our heartbeat, it should be something that we're focused on in our church, and and tonight I want to go through some scripture to start and just lay out a little bit of a theological groundwork for this, if I, if I may. This morning, we, it's not that we didn't think about theology, but we just looked at a practical example in Scripture of this taking place and, and desiring to pattern our lives after that. But I think this will be helpful tonight. And then as we move on tonight, I'll try to keep it moving so you don't go to sleep on me like, oh boy, a theology class tonight on Sunday night. I'll, I'll keep it moving. And uh, then I'm just going to get into some practical things. I even thanks to Amber, was able to get some pictures for you to put on the screen, and maybe that'll help keep you awake. My wife said, well, a picture's worth a thousand words, so you don't need to preach as long tonight, so we'll see how well I can do, all right? Well, let's begin tonight by thinking about this theme together, and I put it on the screen for you, multiplying disciples, right? We, this morning, we just talked about making disciples, but when we see this in Scripture, it's not just that we are commanded to make, but in the process, there ought to be multiplication taking place. And uh, that, that's something Pastor and I over lunch today were talking about. As you get invested in reaching others and encouraging others and help people grow in their walk with God, you, like every single other person that's ever tried to do this, is going to hit a ceiling. In other words, you're going to max yourself out and you're going to get to a point where I'm trying to encourage as many people as I can. I believe, based on the Scripture, because God has given this command to every single one of us, that every, every one of us can at least reach one. Would you agree with me on that? And, and there may be somebody here that can reach 100, right? Or maybe, maybe there's a, a Billy Sunday in here that's just going to reach thousands. I don't know. But I think, biblically, we can say everybody, every believer in Christ, could at least reach one. And, and again, by reaching, not just share the gospel with them and see them come to, a, come to salvation, but also then to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. But for us, 
one of the things as we pursued this in our church that became a real struggle is started with my wife and I. When we got to a point, we said, where do we go from here? We are actively trying to encourage as many people as we can, and there's still so many more people that need help. There's so many more people. I mean, when you look at the world outside, even this building, there's just people everywhere. If you come to my city, and I'll take you downtown, it's just people, people, people everywhere. I think they're saying right now that over 100,000 people a year are moving to the Houston area. So you think about that, like how in the world we could plant a mega church every month and still not keep up with that growth. So I believe if we're going to do this, we definitely need to look to God's word and see how he tells us to do it. Let's begin tonight in a very familiar place, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. We're going to look at several different passages of scripture tonight, so you'll get your fingers ready to follow me as we look through the scripture. Matthew 28, most of you may know this passage of scripture, and if you don't, you'll learn it tonight. It is often referred to as the Great Commission, and some preachers have said it ought to rather be called the Great Omission, because this is what many people do not do, and yet it is what God has commanded us to do. The Bible says, and I'm going to read it this time because trying to quote it this morning, I struggled. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Or amen, I, I don't know. In Texas we would say amen. I think you'd say the same thing here in Colorado. These are Christ's words here to his disciples, but we see this th same theme repeated then throughout various passages in the rest of the New Testament. As we are commanded... For example, when Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach also. We'll look at a passage in Titus 2 where the older men and older women are instructed to take the things that they've learned and pass those things down to the younger men and to the younger women. And, and I could go on. But in this topic of making disciples, I want to point out in the Great Commission there, the, the mandate or the command here is found, the verb, if you will, is found in verse 19, and it's the word that we have translated for us, teach, teach. And that is the word in Greek, it's mathetes, it's, it comes from that word, which is the idea of to make disciples. Now, this word, when Jesus used it, was a word that was very charged with meaning. In fact, this was a word that people in that culture, in that day and age, would have recognized and understood. Because the idea of making disciples in that day was not just something that was connected to Jesus. It was not something that, being a disciple was not something that was just something that was a Christian term. Rather, the idea of making disciples was something that was very common in the culture of the day. It might be something like you and I would think of if we were to use the word to apprentice or apprenticeship. And in that culture, in that day and age, there were many people who had disciples. 
many of the rabbis, the religious leaders, and many of the other people with trades and skills and various knowledge of things, they would have disciples. They would have followers. And what was understood in that culture of that day is a disciple was somebody who literally became a follower. And by literally, I mean they would walk where their leader walked. They would sleep often where their leader slept. They would dress like their leader dressed. They would learn to use the tools that their leader used. They would listen to everything that their leader taught them, and they would try to emulate that in their words and in their actions. So when Jesus said to those men, as he found them in various places, a tax collector, fisherman, various things, when he said, come and follow me, he was calling them to be his disciples. And in that culture, they would have instantly known what level of commitment he was calling them to. This was not a, hey, once in a while, whenever you feel like it, let's, let's hang out. This was not, hey, let's maybe once a month see each other. This was, we are just going to start walking together day in, day out. And for most of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry on earth, he spent most of his days with his disciples. There were some brief times, we know, where he went up in the mountain to pray. There was a brief time when he sent them out two by two to preach, but that was after he had already spent a lot of time with them. And now he was sending them out to go practice the things that he had taught them. And if you want to see that example of Christ in his process of making disciples, just study the Gospels. It's amazing. And you don't have to be a a super-duper Bible scholar to see it. Just read the stories and see not just what Jesus said, but also what he did. Because Jesus has called us, by extension from his disciples, to follow him. Sometimes we think being a good Christian is just knowing a lot of stuff. And we do need to know what we believe and why we believe it. But if we know it and we don't do anything with it, it doesn't do us any good. In fact, the scripture tells us knowledge puffs up, right? And so just becoming smarter doesn't necessarily make us more like Christ. So we're going to talk about this process of making disciples tonight for a little bit. And so as we do that, I want to take you with me to systematic theology class, all right? So we're going to go there for just a few minutes, and and if I had brought my systematic theology book tonight, it'd be sitting about this high uh, just on its side because it is a thick, heavy book. And a systematic theology is taking all the Scripture on a particular topic and putting that Scripture together and saying, okay, then what is the Bible teaching on this particular topic? Now, that's not to be confused with biblical theology or practical theology. There's all kinds of different modes or means of studying theology, but one of those is systematic theology. So, since I know he was in Pastor Brandon's youth group, I'm going to get Isaac to help me for just a moment. I'm not going to make you do anything crazy, but I would invite you to come stand with me up here for just a minute. Because in we're only going to focus on one small aspect of systematic theology tonight, and we're going to talk about sanctification. I I mentioned it this morning, we talked about it briefly, but I want to illustrate using Isaac that there are three parts or three types of sanctification that are taught in scripture. And the first one is called positional sanctification. It's Sunday night, let's say it together. Positional sanctification. So positional sanctification looks like this. When, When Isaac trusts Christ, when he believes on the Lord and is saved, 
he is now positionally saved. So let's pretend that over here on this side of the platform represents where Jesus is and being with Jesus and being connected to him, being a follower of Jesus. So when Isaac trusts Christ, he's now positionally in Christ, okay? Would you agree with me on that? We'll look at some scripture to support this in a minute, but let me just kind of give the overview. So now he's in Christ positionally, and that's one of the ways that sanctification is described in the pages of scripture. But there's also another kind of sanctification, and this is what is known as progressive sanctification. You did so well the last time, let's say it again. Progressive sanctification. So Isaac, come with me now. So Isaac's, we're going to bring him over here to this side of the stage. Now, positionally, because Isaac's saved, where is he? He's in Christ. Progressively, or somebody might say practically, he has a long way to go. And wouldn't you all agree with that? Isaac has a long way to go. Maybe they don't. Maybe they think you're there. And this is a very kind crowd. I, if I had done this at our church, we'd be like, yes, pastor, he has a long way to go. They're very kind to you. That means that's good. So, but progressive sanctification looks like this. As he grows in his knowledge and as he grows in his practical application of that knowledge and his obedience to the Lord, he progressively grows in his faith to become more like Christ. Now, progressive sanctification, biblically, doesn't end until this life on this earth is over. And that brings us to the third part. Some would connect this with sanctification, but it's really, in a sense, a step beyond sanctification, and we would call that glorification. Let's say that one together, glorification. So we have positional sanctification, we have progressive sanctification, and we have glorification. And when glorification takes place, we're not going to kill you on the stage, don't worry. He is now in Christ, both positionally and progressively. In other words, now his faith has become sight. There's no more sin. And his wife says amen to that, right? He is now where he needs to be, where he wants to be, and he's forever in Christ. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here's what we're doing in the process of making disciples. We're finding lost people wherever they are. They might live next door to you. They might even be attending your church. They might even be members of your church. You're finding lost people wherever you work. You're finding lost people in your community, your family members, wherever those lost people are. And, and there's so many different ways to find lost people. Uh, I, I'm not going to focus on that tonight for sake of time, but you're finding lost people wherever they are, and you are sharing the gospel with them, teaching them about Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection. By the way, if we don't have his death, burial, and resurrection, we don't have the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again three days, according to the scripture. Paul said in Corinthians, right, Now I declare unto you the gospel. And this is the gospel. And so if Isaac trusts Christ, now he's positionally in Christ, but progressively, I have a responsibility, I believe, to help him grow in his walk with the Lord. Thank you for helping us tonight. We'll give him a hand for helping us here tonight. All right? You're doing great. All right, that was the illustration. Now, if you can turn and maybe take some notes or jot some things down, I'm going to give you some scripture here. We're going to look at just a moment in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. This idea of sanctification 
looks like being set apart, or some people would think of this in relation to their fancy china dishes. They've been set apart for something. They are holy for particular use. Uh, the Hebrew adjective kados literally means to separate or to cut off. We see this idea in the New Testament as well. 1 Peter 2, 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's the idea of sanctification as being set apart unto God. But another sense of sanctification is that of moral goodness. And this designates not merely the fact that believers are formally set apart or belong to Christ positionally, but then they are to conduct themselves accordingly. That's the progressive sanctification. They are to live lives of purity and goodness. But how many of you, when you got saved, just began living a life of perfect purity and goodness? I better put my hand down too, because none of us could do that. So we recognize, first of all, that sanctification is a work of God. It's a work of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And, I, and that word holy is not H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y. In other words, to completely sanctify you. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. He's speaking about his church. And we looked at this in relation to marriage this weekend at the marriage retreat. But he says here that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I know I'm going quickly, but I just want you to see there is such a preponderance of evidence in the Scripture for this idea of sanctification. Titus 2 and verse 14, "...who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity," here it is, "...and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works." So, purify unto himself a peculiar people positional sanctification, zealous unto good works. That means they're growing in their walk with the Lord, progressive sanctification. We can see both of these at play in the scripture. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, though through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work, to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever heard the scripture that says this? Now, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's speaking of our positional sanctification in Christ. But... For the Greek scholars out there, you'll know that the tense of that is it's a progressive tense in the sense of like it's saying, yes, we're in Christ, we're saved. Nothing, no man can pluck us out of the Father's hand, but there's still that process of becoming 
new. So when God looks at us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the righteousness of Christ, and he sees us positionally in Christ, but progressively, we all have a long way to go. Philippians 1.6 speaks about the process of sanctification in our life. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, positional sanctification, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Progressive sanctification. You guys are really great students. Like You're paying great attention. And I will just tell you, this might, I don't think this is super complicated stuff, but if you can grasp the difference between positional and progressive sanctification, it really does make a difference. You say, why does this matter? Well, it matters because of this. If the only thing that mattered was positional sanctification, then we ought to just do whatever we can to get people to pray and be saved, and then they're good. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not count up how many people got saved last year. The Great Commission is go and make disciples. Now, we'll get to this in a moment, but if we are going to make disciples, that assumes that they're getting saved. So we're not skipping over evangelism and salvation. Don't, don't, don't mistake this here. But the idea that someone coming to Christ, now the Great Commission's been accomplished, is just false. That's only the first step. It's only the first step. So it's a process. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So, we see that sanctification is a work of God. I think we can all agree to that based on the scripture I have read very quickly. <laughs> Number two, sanctification, we learn, is also a work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot divorce the work of the Holy Spirit from sanctification. If you're trying to grow in your walk with the Lord without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do it. Romans chapter 8 teaches us about this truth. It says this in verse 1 through 10. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There's that positional sanctification. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is the progressive sanctification that the Holy Spirit helps us to do. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, this is why we don't have to know all the Ten Commandments, right? The, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Have you ever tried to get somebody to do right who wasn't saved? It's really, really hard. That's why, parents, you work so hard with your little children. You're trying to, in a sense, teach sinners to act like saved people. And so, yes, you want to continue to challenge them to do right. I'm not saying you just say, well forget about it till they get saved there's no hope what i'm saying is their hope is jesus and so yes we continue to point them to do right because they need to understand they've broken the law right the law it's our schoolmaster that points us to christ but then to walk in christ 
They need the Spirit. My wife and I have talked about this with our own children. There has been a marked difference in each of our children from before they got saved to after they got saved. And these are pastor's kids. You know what I believe is the primary difference in their life? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't there before, but now he is present in their life. And now they are much more able to obey and do the things that they ought to do. Verse number five, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh, listen to this, cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's so much in this passage, and I'm just sort of pointing to it to say, this is a really good one that speaks to the fact that the Spirit is involved in sanctification. So we've seen that that, that God, God the Father, is involved in sanctification. We've seen that the Holy Spirit of God is involved in sanctification, but let me give you somebody else who's involved in this process. Not who, but that is involved in sanctification. It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse number 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How are you going to clean up your way? He said, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I have I'm sorry, with blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes with my lips. Have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth? I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Now, when you read that, it sounds very like, I'm just going to do it. We just make up our mind we can walk with Christ. Well, don't forget, it's not a work of the flesh. It's a work of the Spirit. And it's a work of the Spirit because of the presence of Jesus Christ and His salvation that we've received because of His finished work on the cross. So, really, we could say the entire Trinity is involved in sanctification. And the Word of God, the written Word of God, is vital for our sanctification. But actually there, I believe in Scripture, I'm going to show you one more important person that is involved in your sanctification and in my sanctification. And that person is you. You and I are called to be involved in the process of other people's sanctification. And this is going back to the idea of making disciples. And so I want to ask you this question. Do you have an effective, proven process for developing followers of Christ in your church? What would it take for somebody to come to Christ through any means of you sharing the gospel with them, come into this church, 
recognize their need of baptism, be baptized. We know that's part of the Great Commission. Then the Great Commission says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's a whole lot of stuff, by the way. So there's a lot of, of teaching, of education required in this process. To then bring this person to the stage where they now know the gospel, they've trusted in Christ, and they could lead somebody else to Christ. But maybe not even that. How do they get to the point where then they could maybe get up on a Sunday night and share a message? How do they get to the point where maybe you could send them out to go be a missionary someplace else? I believe that's God's desire is for people to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I believe as well it's really important for us as pastors but also for us as a church body to think through what does this process look like in our church. And I've just been convicted in my own life which has driven me to focus on this in our ministry that the reality is most churches say We'd love to see that happen, but we really don't have a plan to see that happen. We'd love to see that happen, but when it happens, it's the exception, not the rule. It's almost surprising. Wow, I can't believe they turned out. I mean, look where they came from. And yes, we give the glory to the Lord for His work. This is not a work of man. This is a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Word of God. But God involves us in the process, and we can see that in one simple way. From the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, when he said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. If somebody were to follow you, would they find Christ? And what would be, or who would be the Christ that you would lead them to? For many of us, We've confused Christ with the church, or we've confused Christ with standards, or we've confused Christ with any number of things. And I'm not discounting the importance of standards or the importance of a good church. But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And as I looked at my own life, I thought, first of all, if somebody followed me, would they, follow Christ, would they find Christ? That's one good question. Another good question, how am I intentionally finding someone so that they can follow me to follow Christ. Like, I can't just hide out in my room and say, well, I just wish somebody would follow me and find Christ. And I'll just tell you, I've studied the Bible, I've even been to seminary, and if they were to follow me, they would find Christ. But I believe I need to be going and looking for those and finding them and saying to them, follow me as I follow Christ. I mentioned Titus 2 earlier. Paul wrote to Titus and he said, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. By the way, can I say this? When we study scripture, I don't think you'll find that Paul was the greatest preacher in the world. In fact, he says several times, I didn't come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom, but he came in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, I think every preacher ought to do his best. Every Sunday school teacher ought to do her best or his best to, do, to be able to proclaim Christ and communicate the Word of God as clearly as possible. We need to do that. But you don't have to be the most dynamic speaker in the world to be a disciple maker. He said in verse 2 of Titus 2 that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. When you read that list, it sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it, men? 
God's commanded us as men to be men who walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk according to the Word of God to be spiritual leaders. And he also has, a, has an exhortation to the women as well. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Wow. Ladies, men, God is expecting a high standard from us. But you know, according to Romans chapter 12, it's reasonable service. Because Jesus Christ gave his all for us. And he's worthy of us giving our all for him. But notice then what he tells them after he gives them this list of how they should live. Not false accusers, not giving them much wine. Teachers of good things, verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. And it goes on. Verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. So what are the older people in the faith, older people in the church body supposed to do? Both men and women. They have a responsibility to instruct those who are younger. And in this instruction, yes, this could include a Sunday school class. That's a great way to do it. But what does he start with? He starts with their own lifestyle, which tells me we need to be teaching not just with our words, but also with our actions. People need to be able to follow us as we follow Christ. I could read on. I'll encourage you to do that. When you have time, read all the way down through verse 15 at another time. I want you to point you to another scripture here, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This is a specific command given to pastors and church leadership. But it also is a command that then extends to the rest of the church body. It says in verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers what did he give those people to the church for? By the way, let me just say, your pastor is a gift to your church. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 says. And I'm thankful for the gift of pastors that God gives to the church. But recognize, even though the pastor, this pastor is a gift to your church, he's still a human being. And God gave him to your church as a gift, and God gave him a responsibility but God's responsibility for your pastor is not to do all the work of the church. In fact, and especially, it's not his work to do all the work of evangelism and making disciples. We can often recognize that when it comes to like, yeah, of course, the pastor's not to work. He doesn't have to run the sound booth and vacuum the floors and wash the windows and clean the toilets and lead the music and play the piano and stand on his head. And, you know, he, no, we recognize that. But we need to also recognize that it's not solely his responsibility to lead people to Christ. It's not solely his responsibility to bring people along in their relationship with God. In fact, you'll see right here, he gave these gifts to the church. Why? In verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. So pastor's job, according and, and there's more to it. We understand there's other passages that speak to it. But from Ephesians chapter 4, you're a gift to this church, and your job is to perfect the saints. Another word you could think of there is to give you all the necessary tools and teach you how to use them so that you can do the work of the ministry. And I don't have time to go into this, but I think if you'll study out this phrase, the work of the ministry, he's not talking about singing in the choir, even though you ought to sing in the choir if, if God's given you that ability to do so. 
Some of you shouldn't sing in the choir, and that's okay, right? But you ought to serve in the Sunday services. You ought to serve throughout the week in various regards. And yet that is not primarily what God is speaking of when he says the work of the ministry. In fact, as you study this out, I think you'll find that the work of the ministry is actually the process of making disciples. And so pastor's job is to equip you to make disciples. And that's a big job, by the way. And I'm thankful your pastor recognized that. I know I recognize it, and it's an overwhelming job, and I, I feel so inadequate to do it. And in the same way, we can't grow in our walk with the Lord without the Spirit's help, without God the Father's help, without the Word's help. Your pastor can't do his job without the Spirit's help and all those things either. He's just a human being. But notice what takes place when the work of the ministry is being done. It says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What happens to the body? It's edified. It's encouraged. It's built up. And when does this stop? Well, verse 13 tells us, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, Pastor, when do you need to stop perfecting saints for the work of the ministry? And saints, when do you need to stop doing the work of the ministry? When there's perfect unity, when everybody has a complete knowledge of the Son of God, and when we have all measured up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Remember we talked about positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. So when does that take place? It's when glorification takes place. So in other words, the work is never done. And I'm so thankful that's why we have the Lord to help us. Because I don't know about you, I hate leaving things undone. I, I want to be able to check my boxes and finish my list and go home and say, I'm so glad the work is done. But the work of the ministry is never done. It's never done. But notice what happens in this process. As people are growing in their walk with the Lord, to become like Jesus Christ, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. You see, you're starting to see process here. People going from children, babies in the faith, that they're growing towards spiritual maturity, that they would not be like children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of, the, of doctrine. How many people are doing that today? And some of these are people who claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, who've known them for many years, and they're still carried about with every wind of doctrine. Why? Because spiritually they're still children. They're still babies. And listen, if you're spiritually a baby here tonight, there's no shame in that. The only shame is being insistent on staying a baby and refusing to grow. So you might be here tonight and be a senior saint headed to the shenanigans and be a spiritual baby, and that's okay. But if you're going to come to Hope Baptist Church, and if you're going to participate in the work of the ministry, then you need to say to the Lord, Lord, I know I'm a baby, but I don't want to stay a baby. And Lord, I, may, I don't know how much time I have left on this earth. Maybe I have six months, maybe I have 60 years, but whatever I have, Lord, I'm going to commit it to you to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do my best to be involved in the work of the ministry to help others do the same. No more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Children are deceived easily. By the way, if you ever come into a church and there are no spiritual babies, that's also a problem because spiritually mature adults, just like physically mature people, they have babies. 
It's part of the natural process of what happens. I'm not going to have biology class here now. You'll be okay. I remember I told you a systematic theology class. We'll stay there tonight. But could you agree with me that spiritually mature people ought to be spiritually reproducing as well? So if you ever come into church and there's no spiritual babies, that's a problem. So this is not just about all of us becoming more like Christ and there's just this big void behind us. No, because what will happen, and I'm just telling you, and you are smart enough to get this on your own, the more you become like Christ, the more you love one another, the more you are intense, intentionally focused on reaching the lost for Christ and helping them grow in their walk with the Lord, you're going to have so many spiritual babies you're not going to know what to do and you're going to feel overwhelmed and so you're going to have to continue this process and continue it and continue it and he says we do this by speaking the truth in love so that they may grow up into him in all things which is the head even christ from whom the whole body remember i said it's all of us involved together the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth now this is kind of a unique body to picture in your mind because he says every joint. So there's a lot of joints in this body, but all the joints are, are working together so that this body can grow according to the effectual working and the measure of every part make it increase of the body and the edifying of itself in love. All right. That was a lot. But we've learned a little bit about positional sanctification progressive sanctification and glorification we've learned that sanctification is a work of god it's a work of the holy spirit it's a work that is done through the word of god but it's a work that you and i are supposed to be involved in as well not just for our own personal sanctification but to help others grow in their walk with christ as well so that's the groundwork let's talk about what this looks like and how this works well, first of all, we recognize that the power comes from God. Power comes from God. Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power. And where did the power come from? After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The Spirit empowers us. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. When you start to recognize the Spirit of God and His work in this process of reaching the lost and making disciples, oh boy, doesn't that really elevate in your mind the importance of Scripture when it says things like, quench not the Spirit, grieve not the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, because without Him we can't do this. And God's commanded us to do this. So God's given us a command, this is what you're supposed to do, and he said, I'm giving you the word, this is what you use, but I've given you the spirit of God, this is your power to be able to do it. So if we neglect any of those things, we are unable to fulfill the responsibility that God has given for us. So the power for this work comes from God, because you and I don't have the power to save. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. This work requires the power of God, and it requires the wisdom of God. 
Because his way is way better than your way and my way. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 to 31. I don't have time to read it all, but let me just read one verse. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you decide in your heart, God, with your help, I'm going to do this work, recognize you need his power and you need his wisdom. And that's why I said start with prayer. Start with prayer and start by encouraging one another in the faith because you are stepping into the battle. But I believe based on the Great Commission, when, when Jesus said, all power is given unto me, go ye therefore. If you really want to experience the power of God in your life, then get involved in making disciples. And you'll see God at work in you and at work around you and in others that you're ministering to. If you don't want to experience the power of God, don't get involved in the Great Commission. Also, though, if you want to experience spiritual warfare and battles, get involved in the Great Commission work. If you are afraid to deal with the spiritual powers and the wickedness of the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, stay far away from making disciples. Because as you walk into this work, you are doing God's work. And the, the enemy, the devil, Satan, he hates this work. And that's why I believe he keeps us so complacent. Because he knows this is where God's work gets done. So there's the power of the work. There's the process. The process of the work. God has given us the plan. And now we need to be faithful to this process. Taking you back to Matthew 28. He tells us to go. This is assumed, right? Go ye therefore and make disciples. Go ye therefore and teach all nations as you are going. So that means we want to always be looking for and reaching out to those who aren't here. We're ready for pictures, all right? Picture number one. We call this the empty chair principle. In other words, I want to look around me and say, man, there's a lot of empty chairs here tonight. Who could be sitting in this chair? Maybe my neighbor could be sitting in one of these chairs. May, may, and maybe not this chair, but maybe the empty chair at your house or your couch or the empty chair across from you at the restaurant. In other words, just keeping this idea in front of us that there's always somebody else that needs to know about Jesus Christ. And so if you want to think of it differently, that's fine. But I just think of it, there's always an empty chair. In the old days, they would say that when they'd set the table for dinner, they would sometimes have an empty place set at the table in case a wandering uh, stranger would come in off the road and need something to eat. And so they would have something prepared. In other words, we need to always be prepared to share Christ. We need to always be prepared in our own walk with the Lord to be able to point somebody else towards Christ, recognizing there's an empty chair and it could be filled by somebody else. So go. This is assume. Teach. Already talked about that. Make disciples. This is the verb. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, what is a disciple? That's a good thing to ask, right? I define it this way. Based on Matthew 4 and verse 19, Jesus said, He saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So what is a disciple? A disciple is, first of all, a follower of Christ. He said, Follow me. Who is being changed by Christ? He said, I will make you to become. And a disciple is someone who's on the mission of Christ. I will make you to become fishers of men. So a disciple is someone who's a follower of Christ, being changed by Christ, and on the mission of Christ. So then, how do we make 
disciples? Well, first of all, some things I think need to be true in our lives and in our church. I know this says the arise difference. I did this in our church a while back, so we call it the hope difference up here. Well, we want to promote a loving culture. Jesus did this everywhere he ministered. He, he showed the love, his love to the lost. So in our church, we want to promote a loving culture. When, when people around, we want to know that we love you. We may not love your sin, but we love you. We don't love their sin. We don't love our sin, but we love you. And we work hard to promote a loving culture, greeting people kindly at the door, finding a seat for people, being willing if they came in and sat in my seat to move my stuff, and it's okay, and I'll find a different one. Although I'm going to try to get there earlier next week so I can get in that seat before you do, right? But promote a loving culture. This isn't rocket science. Secondly, we provide spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability. If we are not providing spiritual accountability for people in their walk with the Lord, if we're not provoking them towards love and towards good works, then what are we really doing as part of the church? Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need to speak the truth in love. And this will then bring about Christ-like transformation. Christ-like transformation. Philippians 3, verse 10, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death and it goes on there but we are to pursue christ-like transformation so we want to make this a part of everything in our church john chapter 13 verse 34 jesus said a new commandment i give unto you that ye love one another as i have loved you that ye also love one another so this brings us then to our formula love Plus accountability equals transformation. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4. Speak the truth in love, right? But we are challenging them to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we see spiritual growth and transformation. That we be no more children tossed about with every wind of doctrine. That we're no longer being deceived by everything that comes along. I don't know if that's good math, but I think that's good theology based on what we have studied. This is a simple formula. The truth is these things should be true not just about Arise Baptist Church or Hope Baptist Church. They should be true about every church that claims to preach the gospel and live it out with their lives. This is not our secret sauce. This is just what the Bible teaches us of how we are to live. Love the lost... And don't beat people up who are struggling with sin. Be honest about your own sin and work to both be accountable and to keep others accountable. Seek your own spiritual growth and encourage and challenge others to follow you as you follow Christ. If you expect your church members to make disciples, then you must make disciples. So... I always ask myself this question, Pastor, 
who are you personally discipling right now? Pastor, who have you led to Christ this year? Right now, I'm discipling Jose. I got to just perform Jose's wedding about a month ago. I got to baptize Jose's, at the time, girlfriend, now wife, last fall. I spend a lot of time with Jose. And Jose and I do all kinds of things together. He's helped me with various projects and things that, that I was doing. I've helped him with various things that he has going on in his life. And we've spent a lot of time studying the scriptures together. So that brings me to our next graphic. And this one might look like a bit of an eye chart for some of you. So let me just, don't focus on all the little words right now. Just focus on the big cross in the middle. What this is, is it, we, we call it our discipleship matrix at our church. And we use this to evaluate ourselves as individuals and also the various programs and activities of our church. Remember, we talked about speaking the truth in love. So love plus accountability equals transformation. So if you can't read this, that's okay, because I can only read it because I'm standing right here. But transformation is in the top right corner. And I would say that's the goal, spiritual transformation. That idea, again, of progressive sanctification that's taking place in our life. So what we believe brings about spiritual transformation is both high love, that's what the, it's at the very top of the screen, and on the far right, high accountability, speaking the truth in love. Transformation brings a culture of growth and great commission focus. When someone's being changed in their walk with the Lord, when they're growing to become more like Christ, it's pretty contagious. It's a good kind of contagious, not a COVID kind of contagious, like a good kind of contagious. And that's what we want to see take place in our church. But if we are a church that focuses on high accountability and instead is very low in our love, we become a church that has a culture of manipulation where we're just sort of shaming people into doing what's right, forcing them into doing what's right, but it's not a real heart change. It becomes a culture of fear and legalism. If we are a church with low love and low accountability, we become a church that has stagnation. We become a stagnant church, a culture of apathy and low expectation. I mean, who cares anyway? I mean, I'm thankful. I can tell this church at least cares for one another. There's some love. But I would tell you this, and I've learned this in our church, no matter how loving you feel like you are as a church, there's somebody here that probably doesn't feel like they're being loved enough. And you can always find somebody to encourage and to show love to and to show accountability to. If we are low on our accountability but high in love, we became a culture that's very permissive. Permissive, a culture of entitlement and tolerance. And I would tell you this, in a lot of the modern churches today, you would find them over here on the permissive side. Hey, we just love everybody. You just stay who you are, and you don't have to change. You just, just be you, and we become a permissive church. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches we should do. Many churches, sadly, around our country today are living in this place of stagnation. They've just kind of given up. There's no love, there's no accountability at all. And yet, sadly, too, there are some churches, and often these churches, people are working really hard. There's some people really engaged. And they're really focused on accountability, but they forget about that really important part of love, and they ended up manipulating others. So, Pastor, what we use this for, and church, what we use this for, is when we are thinking about a ministry, 
or an activity or a program, when we're thinking about how we put together our calendar for the year, when we evaluate even ourselves, hey, how are our deacons doing? How are our ushers doing? How are our greeters doing? How, how is the children's ministry going? How is it in the nursery? How are people feeling? What's the feedback we're getting? We try to run it through this matrix and just ask ourselves, how are we doing? And this isn't anything fancy, but it's really helpful to try to plot that out for yourselves. The truth is, I think we need to take every ministry of our church, every dollar in our budget, and ask ourselves if it is helping us to accomplish the work that God has put us here to do. Does God still save? Yes, He does. Does God still take spiritually dead things and make them alive? I believe He does. So if someone is truly saved, this is the next question. How do they figure out the next spiritual steps? Do they just figure it out on their own? If they just showed up on a Sunday morning service, would they be able to figure out? The reality is the answer to both of those is no. And you're never going to have a Sunday morning service that's going to be able to teach everything everybody needs to know and tell them all of this. So how do we do this? Well, we see then the next steps of spiritual growth. We see that represented in the Great Commission when he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What's the next thing? Baptizing them. Baptizing. So this would be the next step of spiritual growth. So this is something we've drawn out in our church. And if you want to take it and steal it, you're welcome to. I could probably even send you the graphic and you could just swap out the logo in the bottom and it'll all be good. Um, but this is what we've used in our church. So we want to think about these steps and we teach these to our leaders, to our deacons, to our Sunday school teachers. We teach these all throughout the various leaders of our church. We teach these to those who are involved in discipling others because we want them to have a roadmap in their head of where people are going so that they can lead others Follow me as I follow Christ. So new birth, this is salvation, right? Through the work of Christ. That's the first step. First steps, we would include baptism in this. And, but baptism, joining the church, maybe going through for us, we have something called a starting point class. Maybe you have a new members class, something like that. Just taking these first steps. Also in this process, we are connecting them, if they haven't been connected already, with somebody else in our church for one-on-one -on -one discipleship where they take a curriculum that we use and we begin to walk them through and teach them the, the doctrines of, uh, of, of the Word of God and who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit of God and what the local church is and what it means to serve in the church and give. And we go through that and it, it takes a while, but it's really rewarding. I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do. And in this process then, in this growth process, they're going through individual discipleship, but then we start working to plug them in to some other means of group discipleship. Maybe it's a class of some kind. We use something we call them discipleship groups, and we group people together and study scripture and grow together. We have group leaders who are identified, and we help them grow, and this is that next step in the process. Then our goal for these people, not everybody takes all these steps beyond this. Maybe they stay here and they just grow and grow and grow, until Jesus comes back and we praise the Lord for that. But we really are trying to push them to the next step of leading someone else. They may not lead a whole class. They may not lead the church, but maybe they, they ought to be able to lead at least one. And so we want to encourage them. So in this step, we're praying with them. 
hey, who's it, who in your family, who of your coworkers need to be saved? Let's pray with you about these people. Let's put them on our sheet by name. Let's pray for them. How can I help you go lead them to Christ? I'll come with you. You bring them to me. We're doing everything we can because we really want this person to experience the joy of leading someone else to Christ. And if you've never experienced that joy of leading someone else to Christ, let me tell you, I don't know if there's any greater thrill in all the world than leading someone else to Christ. And I believe as long as God leaves you here on this earth, you still have the opportunity to lead somebody else to Christ. So in this growth, we're working, working, working to see them lead somebody else to Christ. My, one of the ladies in our church, I won't say her name in case somehow she watches a live stream or something, but I was so excited. She's growing in the Lord. God has just done a great work in her life. And about two weeks ago, her husband came in. This was on a Wednesday night. I mean, this is how much people are growing. They're even coming to Wednesday night church. She, she, her husband comes in. She came in. They came in for church, and, and we finished the Bible study, and we went to our prayer time, and he sat down. He was beaming, and I said, what's going on? He said, my wife just led her stepsister step to the Lord this week. You, you remember her? We've been praying for her, and we had been because we're encouraging them. Who do you know? Who can we pray with you about? And she got saved, and then she comes up to me. She goes, I've been growing, and this is the person who's been taking me through my discipleship steps. And she said, Pastor, can I get one of those books? Because I want to take my sister through that as well. Well, she's still brand new. She's still learning. And you say, you're going to turn loose somebody who's brand new with somebody else who's brand new? No. We're going to stay with her, and we're going to help her, and we're going to encourage her. And she's going to have a million questions about all kinds of things that come up. Because really quick, when she jumps into this, she's going to go, I'm over my head. And I need some help, and so we're going to come back, and we're going to help her and encourage her. But her enthusiasm, it is contagious. And as she's growing, now she's moving into leading. Right now, it's just leading one. But maybe, just maybe, as God continues to work in her life, she goes from leading one to several, or a group. And then our goal over time is that that person could lead uh, uh, an individual or several individuals or maybe a bunch of individuals to Christ and then as they pour into those that they are leading now we get to the multiplication step not everybody's going to get all the way through this process but everybody I think ought to be moving up so I won't make you say it out loud but if you were to look at this tonight where would you put yourself have you trusted Christ as Savior if not that's where you need to begin if you have have you been baptized? Are you growing in your knowledge of the Lord? Are you connecting into a church body? By the way, this whole Great Commission work, it, it was a command that was then worked out through the local church. The local church is God's means of accomplishing this Great Commission. The local church is made up of people like you and me. And that's why you really need to be connected in with the local church. That's a whole other conversation for another day. But now we're growing in our relationship with Christ, encouraging others. I, I would just guess, based on the room, and this is a Sunday night crowd, that probably most of you would be somewhere either here or here. Would that be safe to say? And probably, if we're honest, more of us are down here than are up here. But here's the thing, and you might feel really nervous me saying all of this stuff tonight. It doesn't mean that everybody goes from grow to lead overnight or that everybody's going to get there even in a year or two years or five years. But here's what we've seen in our church. If even three people move from here to here, it will bring a tremendous change in your church. 
if you had five people to say, I'm going to focus on this, and, and pastor, if God will let me lead somebody to Christ, I want to be equipped to lead them in their walk with the Lord, it'll transform their church. Yes, of course, we wish we had 100% involvement. But if you visited Arise Baptist Church today, it would have felt a lot like Hope Baptist Church. We're about the same size as your church. We, we're still like figuring out how to fit in our building and if we're supposed to move or what we're supposed to. Like, we're going through all that stuff too. But it is transformative when just even a handful of people begin to grasp this and grow. And our final step up there, we call it legacy. We just thought, you know, what happens to somebody who maybe they've walked through all these steps, they've just been encouraging other people, they've led people to Christ, they've seen multiple people that they've led to Christ now leading others to Christ, and that multiplication takes place, and they get to a point in their life, they're still doing these things, but they're now, I, I call them as on a legacy part of their life where they're just investing in people sort of all over the place. This, to me, I would love it if in 20 years the majority of the senior saints in our church were living in these top two categories. Because you might get to a point physically where you don't have the energy to spend time with all these different people and disciple them, running groups. That might be true. But you, you, if you've been doing these other steps, I want to come sit at your feet and just learn from you. And I want to hear the testimonies of God's faithfulness and God's goodness in your life. And I want to be encouraged. I have a pastor friend who's like this. I would call him at the legacy stage. He's 90 years old. And whenever things get really hard for me in the ministry and life, I call him up. And basically his advice goes something like this. You'll be all right. Just trust the Lord. And he'll see you through. And I'll say, thank you, pastor. I needed to hear that. I, you know, I always call him thinking, he's going to give me just that silver bullet special piece of advice that's going to fix all my problems. And he says, trust the Lord. He's given you everything that you need. Walk with him. So I believe God may even take some people to that stage. I know we've gone a little bit long, so let me try to wrap this up. We see a great promise for the work. Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. I think there's one more picture, is there? This is what we call our Great Commission vision. God has commanded us to make disciples. We've been looking at Matthew 28, 19 and 20. As we make disciples, we are then putting them into various groups of people who are growing in their walk with the Lord together. And by the way, I was telling pastors this this afternoon. We have older people with younger people because Titus 2 says that's what we're supposed to do. We have teenagers in with some of the adults. We have young adults with Older adults. Our groups right now, we have men's groups and we have ladies' groups. It's because, again, Titus 2 says the older women teaching the younger and the older men teaching the younger women. It's not wrong to have age-graded classes and to have those other things. I would say do that. But in that, you still need a, a, a place where older ladies can teach younger ladies. And you need to figure out a way where the older men can teach the younger men. And by older, I don't actually think you have to be, you know, like 50 and up to do this. I think some of this from Scripture is just someone who's a faithful believer in walking with the Lord. If you're a faithful believer in walking with the Lord and you're 25 years old, you can probably find somebody else who's 19 years old and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. But I would encourage you to go connect yourself to somebody in the church who's maybe 65 years old and get some advice from them who will help you along the way. 
So we're putting them into groups. We see that as these groups continue to grow together over time, these groups could, and we're not there yet, but this is kind of the dream. This is dream stuff here. Maybe those groups over time would grow into something that would be almost like a whole bunch of groups in a particular neighborhood or area. Something I've been praying is that God would help us to lead somebody to Christ and see them discipled who live on every single street in the community around our church. Wouldn't that be cool? If you could put up a map on the wall and say, look at that, there's a lighthouse on every street. And it's not just someone who's a member of our church, it's somebody who's actively invested in reaching their Jerusalem for Christ. And we are not there yet. But I think it's okay to dream about that and work towards that end. And wouldn't it be neat if the people that lived on Marcella Street, that's my street, were so effective at reaching that group of people on that street that over time, maybe that street, and ours is close to the church, but maybe that street says, you know what, we just need a Marcella Street Baptist Church. It's really fascinating. If you go into the old community, not far from our church, there used to be lots of believers that lived in that community. And you go almost every block and there is another church. Some of you may look at it, what's wrong with those people? Well, think about how many people live on your street. If 25% of the people who lived on your street, if you live in a subdivision, I know some of you are like, I live in the country, I don't have a neighbor within two miles. But let's say you live in a subdivision, like in the city, like I do. If 25% of the people who lived on my street attended and were part of our church, our church would be bigger than it is right now even if no one else was coming, just people that lived on my street. It's just exciting to see what the Lord might do. So we think that community groups over time could become more church plants, and then we're, and it's just an ongoing process. Why do I say all this? Well, maybe it's because I'm 39 and I'm just too naive about the realities of life. Maybe I say all this because I'm just full of youth and energy and I have nothing better to do with my time. No, those things are not why I say this. I say this because God's word, I believe, teaches this. I say this because I believe this is what God has called us to do. I say this not because it's easy, rather it's quite hard, but I'd rather spend my life doing something hard that makes a difference for the kingdom than spending my life doing something easy that makes no difference at all. I'd rather be in a church where we are joining together to work to advance against the forces of darkness, to preach the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people brought from death to life and from positional sanctification to progressively growing to be more like Jesus Christ so that they can know Christ, so that their families can know Christ. I think about Jose. Jose if he walks with God, there's already four children attached to that household. What if those four children come to know Christ and walk with the Lord? What could happen with those grandchildren someday? You look at Jose. Jose doesn't look like the rest of us, though. You know, he didn't have everything in the same order, in the right order, the way the Bible says you should do it. I'm so thankful that God forgives sinners. But sinners, as we saw this morning, they need Barnabases who will come alongside and encourage them. I know this is probably been way long. I have no idea what time it is even is. And I know we got some cupcakes to eat. <laughs> because this is important to celebrate what God has done in your life.
and what he's brought you to. But I'm passionate about this because God's word says it, and at least in small ways, we are seeing it in real life. And I believe you can too. I believe you can too. It's going to have to start with prayer. Humbling yourself before the Lord. Because remember, this is a work of the Spirit. And if we're not walking in the Spirit, we will be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And walking in the Spirit, we learn, is not a once-for-all kind of thing. It's a daily thing. <laughs> Man, there are times I don't feel like studying the Bible as much as I should. But then I remember, Jose likes to study the Bible. And he's going to have some questions. And I better be ready. One of the greatest things that God has used to grow me spiritually is leading other people to Christ and trying to lead them to follow Christ. It'll push you to your knees and it'll push your nose into the word of God and it'll cause you to cry out to God and say, Lord, help, because I don't know. I have, a, I have an answer I give now to most people when they walk in because every time this has taken place and I've had the opportunity now to be involved in discipling since we started our church about eight or ten men personally every time they come in I know they're going to say something or they're going to have some question that's going to be way beyond me they're going to have some sort of baggage from their history that they're bringing in and they're going to ask me something and so here's what I say I may not have the answer but I know the one who does. And together, we will walk and find those answers from God's word. And we will ask God's spirit to show us what he wants us to do. And together, we will encourage one another to stay on the path that God has set for us. But we're going to do it together. And that takes time, patience. It's really messy, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I, I can sense even just in this room tonight, our hearts are full. Our hearts are full because your word is plain. But Lord, there's also a great burden here that through your word and by your spirit, you have laid upon us tonight. Maybe it's a burden others, some have carried for a while, but for some, this may be the first time to really think through this like we've done tonight. And so, Lord, I recognize that knowing the truth now means we have some responsibility. To whom much is given, the Bible says, much is required. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would give grace, that as we examine our hearts before you, as we consider what we're doing as individuals, not just looking around and pointing out the other people and saying, well, they ought to do this, or pastor ought to do this. Just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us grace, and that when we fail, and we so often do, that we would come back to you, asking you for forgiveness and help to get back up and keep going on. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work at Hope Baptist Church. We thank you for what you've done to bring it to this point. Lord, this didn't happen by accident. I believe this church is here as part of your plan. But Lord, you have a plan for this church. I believe as they walk with you and serve you, the best is yet to come. Help them to seek you and to seek your will and to be faithful to obey it. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.